All right, listen, we're going to be in Luke 22. Uh, we have been going through Luke for quite a while, and we're going to keep on keeping on. So uh, I would love for you to turn to Luke 22. If you don't have a Bible, please take one of ours in the back. Um, if it's not obvious, I think it, we're pretty casual and laid back. So like if you get up and go get a Bible, nobody's going nobody's gonna to gasp in shock. Um, we are going to look at one of what I would say the greatest, has to be one of the greatest betrayals in human history. Uh, it's up there with, you know, uh, Shakespeare's rendition of Julius Caesar where Brutus stabs Caesar uh, in the back, right? This exceeds even that. And before I get into that text, I, I want to ask you to just pause for a second and think about your own experience. Try and remember for a minute. Have you ever been betrayed? You ever been stabbed in the back? What was that experience like? Who betrayed you? And what kind of emotions went along with that experience? Maybe most importantly, when you were betrayed, how did you respond to that betrayal? When a family member or a friend or or somebody else close to you suddenly went from being for you to being against you, how did you react as those emotions of betrayal began sort of coursing through your veins, weighing heavy on your heart? Um, For those of us who've been betrayed, we know this is no small thing to go through. You know, we're going to read about Jesus' betrayal on the pages, but this is a real event that happened in place and time. And if you've been through that experience, you know how hard it can be. And I want us to see how Jesus responds on a couple different levels. So let me read Luke 22. We're starting in verse 47, and I'm going to read through 53. While Jesus was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, Have you come out out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. Well, I want to break this down and look at uh, first Judas and Jesus, then Jesus and the disciples, and then Jesus kind of in this wider crowd, this mob that's come to get him, okay? Uh, Let me reread 47 to 48. While Jesus was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Uh, I don't know how things operate with you and your family, but in my life, there are literally five people that I kiss, okay? My, my wife and my four children, if you're concerned, those are the only five, okay? Which means we might be somewhat culturally distanced from this story. Uh, I don't typically kiss my, my friends. Uh, but at the same time, it's not all that difficult for us to understand this action, is it? A kiss is a display of intimacy. 
It's a display of affection. Whether we culturally kiss our spouse or our children or maybe, you know, our friends, our wider family, maybe people that we know at church, whatever the case may be, we instinctively understand that to kiss somebody is to express love, devotion, tenderness, care towards them. And the Bible actually has a lot of kissing in it. If you do a word study on kiss, you'll find that it comes up quite frequently. And in every single instance, it's a sign of affection. Proverbs 24, 26 says, uh, I I think kind of makes this connection. It, It says, whoever gives an honest answer kisses the lips. Think about Judas's kiss and the deception behind it. The point is, kissing is reserved for a positive expression of intimacy. It's a beautiful thing. It communicates love. Actually, in the Greek language, the word for kiss is, uh, is based off of the word phileo, which is love. Which is why this action by Judas is such a horrendous move of betrayal. Judas chooses a sign to betray Jesus that should be reserved only for displays of love and affection. A sign of friendship becomes an instrument of betrayal. And in response to this action, Jesus, he declares one statement that I think has some powerful implications. He says to Judas, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? I think two things. First, this shows uh, a lot about Jesus' heart towards Judas. This is astounding. Although Judas betrays his friend with an evil, adulterated act of love, Jesus truly responds to his enemy with tenderness. I think actually these words are one final pleading on behalf, uh, uh, from Jesus on behalf of Judas to kind of come to his senses. Consider your actions, Judas. One last attempt at bringing Judas to conviction— to to prod his heart one last time and see, is it truly so hard, Judas? Is your heart so hard that you would betray me with this act of love? And I think this statement by Jesus is an act of love, to press his enemy, to be broken, to plead for this kiss to actually be friendship and love, not an act of evil and betrayal. And consider how wonderful Jesus is that even as his friend of three years stabs him in the back, Jesus, even in this moment, is giving him one last invitation to turn away from the destructive path that he's going down. And I want you to understand, even in the final moment, Jesus offers grace to those who are his enemies. And think about this, if Jesus can extend this kind of love to his enemies, to Judas, how much more can we, who are called his children, his friends, his brothers and sisters, expect love and grace from him? If he loves his enemies in this manner, how much more can we expect kindness from him? I mean, the kiss that Judas offers to Jesus reveals his heart is so far gone Unfortunately, there's no turning back at this point. But I believe that the love of Jesus extends so far that even in this moment, if Judas had wept for his sin against Jesus, he would have been forgiven. If he had turned, Jesus would have welcomed him with open arms. 
And we believe that the steadfast love of the Lord goes so far that even until the very end, Jesus loves his enemies. You know, I I realized after I sat down that when we prayed, I didn't pray for the persecutors. God longs for them to give up their persecution in India and to come to him. Even those who knowingly betray him and understand this is not an us and them. Which category do you belong in? You belong in the category of those who betray Jesus. And it's easy for us to feel sorry for ourselves when we have been betrayed, but we need to admit what Scripture teaches, that in fact we are the betrayers. In our treatment of Jesus and in our treatment of others, we are guilty of betrayal. Uh, We are the reason that Jesus went to the cross. Do you understand that? If it hadn't been Judas, it would have been you. If it hadn't been Judas, it would have been me. And so what really separates us from Judas? Judas stabbed Jesus in the back. We've done that. Jesus loved Judas. He loves us. The only thing that keeps us from being Judas is that we turn and repent. We express our sorrow. We seek the forgiveness of Jesus, which is what Judas never took the opportunity to do. The love of Jesus ends up being greater than this betrayal. And so by his grace and his mercy, we are forgiven. Unfortunately, that's not the case for Judas. We find another profound statement, though, leveled at this question uh, that Jesus gives to Judas. It's the claim that Jesus makes about his authority. He says of himself that he is the son of man. That's a term that hopefully you're familiar with. It's actually a terrifying allusion to the Old Testament, Daniel chapter 7. We see a vision of God the Father, and he's called the Ancient of Days. I love that title for him. And as he sits in glory on his throne, one comes before him riding the clouds of heaven who's called the Son of Man. He's described like a Son of Man. And he comes and he's presented to the Ancient of Days. And the Ancient of Days, God the Father, gives unto this Son of Man all power and dominion and authority over all of creation. And so Jesus, as he looks his betrayer in the eyes with love, claims for himself to be that very son of man with dominion and a power and authority. And it's a terrifying and amazing fact. It's a statement that affirms both the humanity of Jesus And the divinity of Jesus, that he is both 100% man and 100% God. And consider what this statement means for the events that are about to unfold. Yes, Judas betrays Jesus with a wicked, phony kiss. But by this statement, Jesus claiming for himself what is true of the Son of Man from Daniel 7 makes clear that nothing that is about to happen to him will happen without his approval. In fact, John emphasizes this point. If you turn to his gospel, as as this mob comes and they say, we're looking for Jesus, Jesus says, I am he, and the crowd around around him is blown backwards and they fall to the ground, which I think is John clearly saying, this Jesus has power over every event that is about to unfold before he goes to the cross. This journey to the cross that he is embarking on, it's a journey that none of these men around him have the power to force upon him. Instead, Jesus, the all-powerful one, 
is compelled by love for his enemies, for you and I, to go to the cross on our behalf. And if only Judas, if only he had been wise enough to associate Daniel 7 with what Jesus claims, if only Judas had been able to hear the mercy in Jesus' voice as he says these things. And I plead with you not to miss these truths. Hear the compassion in Jesus' voice. Know his power over death. See his limitless love as he chooses to die on your behalf for your redemption. Let's look at the interaction with the disciples as a whole. Let me read 49 to 51. And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them, that one is actually Peter. I think at this point Luke is trying to give Peter a little bit of kindness here because he's been pretty rough on Peter and it's only going to get rougher, right? One of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said no more of this and he touched his ear and healed him. Man, again with Peter, poor Peter. He's just always making a fool out of himself. Um, Listen, if you were here last week, I told you, you need to pray. That's what Jesus asked his disciples to do. And I think that if they had not failed to do that, they would have been more prepared for this moment because instead of praying, Jesus finds his disciples sleeping. And so when the moment of trial comes, because they had not been praying that God would keep them from temptation, they're not calm, cool, and collected like Jesus is. They are filled with fear and anger. And they fall to the temptation to take matters into their own hands rather than entrust them to God. And of course, they, they, they sort of give this nod to Jesus, right? They ask him, should we use these swords that we have that we talked about at dinner, right? Uh, this is a hopeless and embarrassing fight, really. And then there's Peter, so impulsive he doesn't even wait for Jesus to answer the question. Right? He sort of tosses the question out there, but he doesn't really mean it because the next thing he's doing is swinging that sword. He acts without waiting on the Lord, and he looks like a fool as a result, doesn't he? Thank goodness he was a fisherman and not a soldier because he stunk at being a soldier. The best he can do is lop off a guy's ear. And I just want to remind you how important prayer is to the Christian life because if these men had been doing it, they probably would have responded more like Jesus. Peter gives us a great illustration of what it looks like to try and follow Jesus without the obedience of prayer. And you have to love his zeal. You have to love his passion, his enthusiasm. But he actually falls into the wickedness of violence in Jesus' name. He sins against this man. He can't even claim self-defense because he swings the first blow. And again, I remind you, you need to pray. You need to pray because life is filled with circumstances where you are going to be tempted to act contrary to how Jesus has asked you to live. And without the strength of the Spirit that comes from prayer, you're doomed to fall into the same sin and error as Peter. Taking matters into your own hands maybe even being motivated by righteous zeal for Jesus, yet guilty of committing sin in the process. Jesus, on the other hand, he puts into practice what he had told his disciples from the beginning of his ministry. He stops the violence, and then in compassion, he restores the wounded ear of this man 
This man who has come with this angry mob to arrest him under the cover of darkness and try him unjustly and have him executed. You heard Chrissy read Luke 6. This is earlier in the gospel that we've been going through. Luke records these words of Jesus. Love your enemies. Don't return evil for evil. The simple fact of the matter is you cannot do this. You cannot live by this code of conduct. But Jesus did. And we see him here in the garden restore the man who's going to participate in his murder. Jesus loves his enemies. He has compassion on them. And you do need to understand, through the power of Christ in you, because Jesus succeeded in this moment, you too can, in fact, live like this. You can love your enemy. The pastors in India who are being thrown in jail, whose families are being threatened, can actually love the people doing that because Jesus has loved them. Whereas without prayer, apart from the work of God, the disciples, they don't live by the code, love your enemies. They live by the code, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Which is why Peter, seeing clubs and swords, responds in kind. And yet Jesus, through the power of God, in answer to his prayers, he loves his enemies. He's merciful like the Father. He repays no one evil for evil. And, and here's just a quick warning for you. Don't try and do this on your own. I promise you, unfortunately, it won't go well. You need to lean into the power of Christ through prayer. And the same Spirit of God that raised Christ Jesus from the dead will give to you a divine and heavenly life. It'll bring life to your mortal body so that you can live like Christ lived. So that through Christ you may be like Christ, loving and blessing those who wrong you rather than responding in kind. Finally, the crowd that comes out against Jesus, this mob who approaches him under the cover of darkness, comes with torches, with clubs and swords, like he's some kind of wild beast or a dangerous criminal. As I read this, I couldn't help but think of beauty and the beast, you know, when they come against him with like the pitchforks and the torches at night. Let me read 52. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and the elders who had come against him, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. These men track Jesus down in the darkness because they know that their cause is unjust. They are afraid of the people who have seen Jesus do nothing but good and they know that they will come to his defense. They're afraid of the people who would rise up in advocacy for Jesus who's done nothing but heal people, show mercy, teach the ways of God in wisdom. Jesus has done nothing to to deserve a tribunal in the dark. Uh, I've been doing some of my own just personal study time in Job right now, and I came across this amazing parallel, and I want to read it for you. This is Job 24, verses 13 through 17. It says this, There are those who rebel against the light, who are not acquainted with its ways, and do not stay in its paths. The murderer rises before its light, that he may kill the poor and needy, and in the night he is like a thief. 
The eye of the adulterer also waits for the twilight, saying, No eye will see me. And he veils his face. In the dark they dig through houses. By day they shut themselves up. They do not know the light. For deep darkness is morning to all of them. For they are friends with the terrors of the deep darkness. Look, there's a very practical reason why people are instinctively afraid of the dark. Under the cover of darkness is where all kinds of evil takes place, isn't it? That's a truth that's both literally true and figuratively true, okay? Uh, Literally true, at night, bad things happen because it's dark. Figuratively, this is true about the things that we do in, in secret, isn't it? In other words, where people believe that they are not being observed or seen, they are emboldened to do evil. Uh, I was actually at the grocery store last night, and I saw a lady go through the automated checkout aisle. She didn't pay for her food because she knew that the person who was supposed to be watching it had their back turned. Crazy. Evil is, is often done in obvious places, but it's most often done in secret, isn't it? This is why Jesus points to the fact, look, day after day, in broad daylight, I was in the temple doing these good works. The sun was shining high in the sky. Everyone could see me, and you could have come and passed a judgment on me then. But in contrast, you've come in the night to arrest me unjustly under the power of darkness. There's some simple wisdom for us to learn here. And I want you to hear me clearly. I know, again, This is much later than we normally go for church. But listen, if you want your sin to continue to have power over you, if you want to continue to be a slave to sin, then by all means, keep it in the dark. Hide it. And it will embolden, it'll be emboldened to consume you in that darkness. If your marriage is on the rocks and you actually want it to shipwreck, keep on keeping it a secret. If you have a sin in your life that you feel like you just cannot overcome, and maybe you even think you like it that way, continue to hide it from other Christians. Those who love you, those who care about you, and it will overpower you. But if you want to be free from that, if you want to know the freedom of life that Jesus offers, you've got to drag that crap into the light so that others around you who love you and care about you can help you deal with it. This is one of the reasons why we have family churches at Maricopa Springs. Uh, it's because we want to know you. We want to come alongside of you. We want to gather in smaller groups so that we can actually be honest about the things that might be in the dark or in the secret in our lives. We cannot afford to hide from one another, to keep each other at arm's distance, to let the darkness have any sort of power in our lives. It's our responsibility to overcome this darkness with the light of Christ. If I could illustrate it, sin is like a vampire, As long as it's dark, it will suck your blood until you die. But you know what happens to a vampire when it gets in sunlight, right? It vaporizes. Maybe you're not a nerd like me. Expose sin to sunlight, to the light of the sun, and it slowly dissolves and eventually vanishes. 
In the Gospel of John, the apostle writes that Jesus is light and he shines in the darkness and the darkness cannot overcome it. However powerful the darkness may appear at any given moment in time, the power of the light of Christ is greater. And it's greater in two ways. I'll close with this, okay? First, the power of light is greater because it chases the darkness away. Flick the light switch on and the darkness flees. Sin brought into the light of Christ is dissolved by his glory and goodness, his greater power. So as Christians, our responsibility is always to drag our sin into the light so that Christ can pierce that darkness and put our sin to death. And second, you need to understand, darkness never gains victory over light. Be encouraged by this. Although the darkness may try with all of its might, it never succeeds in destroying light. Look at the very last words of Jesus before he's arrested. Verse 53, he says, But this is your hour and the power of darkness. That seems like a pretty glum statement at first, doesn't it? Kind of fatalistic and a little bit depressing. Jesus admits this is the hour in which they're going to do their dirty deeds of evil in the darkness. But Jesus knows something that this angry mob around him doesn't know. In the Gospel of John, we find Jesus looking forward to this moment. He says these words, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. In other words, this hour belongs to the mob who under the cover of darkness is going to condemn Jesus and execute him. But in a greater and more powerful way, this hour belongs to Jesus, who through the light and life of his resurrection will once and for all destroy the darkness of sin and death. And so no matter how hard the darkness may press, no matter how heavy it may appear at any given moment, the power of God is greater so that God can use even darkness as a tool for light. As John says, in Jesus is life, and this life is the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. We're going to do communion together. And the way we're going to do that this morning is we're going to pass the elements during this next worship song as our team sings and plays and leads us. And if you are a believer, then I encourage you as the elements pass by to grab a cracker and a cup of juice and just hold that. Here's an opportunity for you to give God thanks that he overcomes the darkness, to repent and receive his forgiveness, to seek his mercy and express your love for the grace that he has given you, to renew your commitment to drag sin into the light that God may set you free from it. And I encourage you to revel in the fact that you are forgiven of every sin, past, present, and future through the finished work of Jesus who shed his blood for you. After this song, I'll get back up and we will take those elements together. So just hold them until I come back up. <laughs>